Good morning. It's great to see you again this week, both here in-house, and although I can't actually see you online, I know you're there, and we're grateful that you've joined us today. Last week, we looked at the conversion of Paul, and with the backdrop of that dramatic story, we considered the big subject of guilt. How was it that Paul was able to overcome the massive load of guilt that he would have inevitably have felt on the realization that the people that he had been pursuing to death were the followers of the Messiah. This week, we're going to look at Paul's continuing story, and we're going to look at what is implied in the story by, again, taking another passage in the New Testament and creating a kind of binocular vision of what it is that we see in Paul's story. By getting the two perspectives, we'll understand more of the details, more of the, more of the fabric of what it is that makes up Paul's life, this most important, seminal we might say, person of the New Testament. As we look at the backdrop, we'll see that the backdrop is a backdrop of suffering and hardship and difficulty. And against that backdrop, we will consider shame and perhaps we'll even have time to look at fear. And so the three great enemies of Peace in a human heart, the three great enemies of peace of mind, guilt, shame, and fear will be examined in these two weeks as we look at Paul and the moment of transformation and the years of transition as he learned what it was that God had called him to. When Ananias was sent to pray for Paul, Jesus said, I'm going to have to show him how much he will suffer for my name. And so today we'll consider that as we look at this continuing story. I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 9 and halfway through verse 19. Most of us in our Bibles will have a heading that says something like Saul in Damascus and Jerusalem. I'm going to read that to you right now. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So we have the the chronology of events that take place between the conversion and the disappearance of Paul. He's called Saul at this stage in the story, but we know him as Paul, the apostle of the New Testament. And in this next period, right after he's put on that boat to Tarsus, 
Many of the old divines, many of the scholars of the New Testament down through the centuries have described the next period of his life as the hidden years. What was it that occurred during those hidden years? What was it that happened in Paul's life? And how can we understand what it was that took place later in his life in relation to these things? This is what Paul tells us about that period in his life and and mostly what happened during that period. I'll explain some of the events that didn't happen during these hidden years, but, but for now, just listen to this. This is in 2 Corinthians and verse 11, in chapter 11. And I'm going to read from verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Now, all of those things that are detailed there are detailed by Paul writing to the Corinthian church around about the latter years of the 50s. So let's assume that it's somewhere around 56, 57 AD. He's coming to the completion of his third missionary journey, which has been mostly spent in Ephesus. He gets messages from the leaders in the church in Corinth. The old synagogue ruler who's now come to Christ, Sosthenes, comes with a, with a delegation to Paul to say, things are going badly in the church in Corinth. And so Paul writes, with the help of Sosthenes, the first Corinthian letter. And then there is a continuing correspondence as Paul sends First Timothy and then Titus and then makes a brief trip himself to kind of knock heads together and get things moving in the right direction again. And what we have here in Second Corinthians is his clear statement of intention of what it is that he's going to do as he arrives in Corinth for the third and final time. And how it is that he's going to deal with the so-called super apostles who have presented themselves as better than Paul, more significant than other leaders, and have divided the church with their teaching. And here, as we just read, Paul describes his credentials having already said that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, a, a, a Pharisee, someone who's, who's been zealous for the Lord. He then goes to detail all of the things that he suffered. And the things that he details here mostly happened in the years between being sent to Tarsus by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and being found again by Barnabas in chapter 13, and we'll read that, obviously, when we get there in our study of the book of Acts. Scholars debate as to how long this period is. Some say nine, some say 13 years. For two reasons, I think 13 years is the most likely. First of all, it fits best with the chronology, in my opinion. But it also fits within the biblical narrative in a way that just seems too convenient to ignore. Because this 13-year period that Paul goes through, hidden, in obscurity, facing difficulty, and it would appear largely failing in his mission, is the same length of time that Joseph was in captivity in Egypt. He went as a young man of 17, was sent to Potiphar's house, was accused wrongly, was sent to prison, 
and lived in that prison and in that captivity for 13 years until he gave the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream and was set on a pedestal higher than anyone else. It was 13 years. And with David, after his anointing by Samuel, identified as the future king of Israel, slaying Goliath and being declared by the people of Israel as a great hero, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Having been harried and harassed by Saul and chased out of the royal court, it was 13 years between the beginning of his story and the period when he ascended the throne of Israel. It just seems too convenient for me that it's not 13 years for Paul as well. And what happens in these 13 years? Well, the same thing that happened for Joseph and for David. There is a period of preparation. And the principal theme of that preparation, the, the principal melody of the soundtrack of his life, is one in minor tones because it's a story of suffering. Yes, one of the times that he's stoned, or the time that he's stoned, and one of the times that he's beaten with rods, we read about in the, in, in the three missionary journeys of Paul, but, but the five times that he's beaten with the 39 lashes, the, the two other times that he's beaten with rods, the three times that he's shipwrecked, all of the dangers that he describes, almost all of these took place between the time when the apostles put Paul on the boat to Tarsus and Barnabas came to find him. The memory of the church written down in the ancient histories of the church outside of the Bible tell us that Barnabas searched the city of Tarsus, couldn't find him. Searched the region of Phrygia, couldn't find him. Searched through the Silesian region and eventually went up into the Taurus Mountains where he had heard of a man living alone, fitting the description, but it couldn't possibly be Paul because this was an old man, wizened and broken. And there in a cave, isolated and alone, fearing for his life. was the great apostle of the New Testament. You see, when you are excommunicated from a synagogue for serious heresy or serious sin, you're considered dead. The memory of the church, again, is that Paul had a wife and even children before he was converted. They all cut him off and considered him dead. Very few from his family, one that's mentioned in the greetings at, at the end of the letter to Romans and, and a nephew that's mentioned in the story of his captivity in Caesarea that we'll look at a little later were perhaps the result of his witness to his family but it would appear that largely his family cut him off because you see, if you've been convicted of serious heresy or serious sin, you are considered dead. And the symbol of your death is this, that you're stripped naked in front of the congregation of the synagogue, tied to a pillar in that building and whipped mercilessly 39 times. Now that could kill any human being. We've all heard of what flogging does and the, the terrible effects that it has on a human being and the way that it strips flesh from bone. Imagine the level of inner stress faced by a person who would see it again. 
and then again, and then again, and then again. The memory of the church is that Paul's body was a tissue of scars, so layered with the scars on his back that he was no longer this vital, noble youth ready to take on the world. Now he had aged unnaturally and his back was bent over because he couldn't straighten because of all of the injuries and scar material. He's spoken of as having bandy legs, which is often the symbol of a person that's been mercilessly and systematically beaten. We're told, again, from the memory of the church that he would speak to the crowds hanging on his every word through hooded brows and a bent over body and a croaky voice. When he speaks in 1 Corinthians of not having anything to commend himself physically, he wasn't exaggerating. As well as this, he ran across Roman authorities at least twice because being beaten by rods is the penalty of, of breaking Roman laws. And perhaps it was there that he realized that he needed to claim his Roman citizenship to prevent such things happening to him systematically. This was a man who knew continuous pain. This was a man who had been physically broken by his circumstances and experiences. It's so easy to read it, isn't it? Five times, 39 lashes, three times with rods. But as you consider what it was that he suffered, it's appalling. And so what happened? What happened in the life of Paul through all of the suffering? What would happen in our life through suffering if we were able to embrace the circumstances in the same way that the great apostle did. You see, as he encountered Jesus, he knew that the only thing that he could do was to testify to what it was that had happened in him. And so he began the task of sharing the good news that he had received. He knew that there was no alternative. He had to do this. And as the Lord delivers us and sets us free from that old self that we looked at last week that needs to be left buried in the grave, not, not dragged out of the grave and strapped again to our living life. As we're delivered from that old being, that old person, that, that, that former life, so the good news begins to course through our veins and we're able to share it clearer and with greater confidence to the people around us. I'm sure that Paul settled guilt in the early stages so that he was able to share that Jesus was the Son of God. But now... There were other things that God needed to settle. Shame. Let me be quite clear about this. In the time of Paul, it was very, very, I mean, ubiquitous and universally recognized that good people have good things happen to them and bad people have bad things happen to them. The honor-shame culture that Paul was born into built upon generations of people who had lived under the curse of the law, as Paul describes it in Galatians 3, were people who lived 
on the continuum between blessing and cursing. Somewhere near blessing was a kind of a sense of general affirmation. Somewhere near cursing was a general sense of shame. This continuum was the frame in which relationships were made and had with everyone. And so, if you do things that cause you to be cursed, then you are shamed by everyone. If you are exiled, excluded, isolated, alienated, marginalized, sent out from the community, then you are being shamed. And if you're being shamed fundamentally and for always, you're being cursed. In other words, you're dead to that community. People would have looked at Paul's life and heard this testimony and would have assumed there's no smoke without fire. He must have done something wrong. It's impossible that all of those people, all five synagogue congregations, five different churches, excommunicated him? Two different Roman magistrates had him beaten publicly? It's not possible. The man must be a criminal. He must be a charlatan. He must be a faker. There's got to be something wrong with him. Look at him. He's the very image of a person who is shamed. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul testifies to what it is that's happened in his life. When he says this, he says, Everyone who breaks the law is cursed. That's what the scriptures say. That means that all of us stand under that curse. And if we stand under that curse, we cannot receive the blessing of Abraham. But if we can't receive the blessing of Abraham, then how can we honestly know God? How can we? be those who claim to be the children of a heavenly father, people who by faith have been grafted into the person of Christ. Paul wants to say, hang on, I'm going to fall over if I'm not careful. Paul wants to say very clearly, wants to say very clearly that he is not one who should be considered cursed, and neither should anyone else. Listen to this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. That's everybody who attempts to live their life according to an external code. If you attempt to live your life up to the standards of an external code, you're cursed. That's what it says here. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith says Paul, quoting the Old Testament. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise 
of the Spirit. But surely this is ancient history. This doesn't, this doesn't really relate to us, does it, in 21st century America? Well, here's the thing. Me as an armchair anthropologist, these are my observations. Guilt is something that still runs rampant in my generation and those who are of a similar age. But for many people of the emerging generations, guilt is not the principal agent of stress in their life. Guilt may be present, of course. Guilt may be true, of course. Everyone's a sinner. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We know that. But guilt may not be an active agent of stress and change in a young person's life. Parents have spoken to me about this for years now. They say, I don't get it. Don't they feel guilty? And the answer is, no. But if you ask them, do they feel shame? And you say, yeah, but I mean, it's not the same kind of thing, is it? Okay, just listen to this. The principal artifact of our culture, the most important artifact of the culture of the 21st century is the internet. Everybody agrees with that? Yeah, it's, it's, like it's, it's not a major revelation at that point, is it? It's the principal artifact of our, of our new century. And... The principal economic and social engines operating on the internet are social media, correct? And they were invented for and by the emerging generation. And it's all about shame and blessing. Do you know how many young people are committing suicide? Do you know the metrics that reveal that this malady of the emerging generation is so much more prevalent than it ever was in previous generations? And it's all about the shaming culture of social media, you can be canceled, you can be exiled, you can be flogged with the withering tongues of gossiping people. Your life can be ruined, your career can be wrecked. Is anybody following what I'm talking about here? This is the very stuff of life. It may not be the stuff of life for me. I've got people who do social media for me. Are you kidding? I'm not going to waste all my time on that thing. I'm way too old for that. But young people? Raised suckling the breast of social media? Their lives are defined by shame or honor. You're either valuable or of no value. And it's a kind of binary system that you're constantly seeking to, to be well known in, to be, to be well thought of in, to to hopefully get likes in. How many times do members of the congregation here put a post and then go count the likes? Lots. Is it true or not? So there's a, there's a significant, this is not a subtle change in culture, this is a significant change in culture. 
And so what are we to say to a whole generation, generations, Generation Y, the millennials, Generation Z, I would say Z if I was back in England, but nobody knows what that is here, it's Generation Z, and then Generation Alpha, even the little kids that are coming up, they literally are breathing this as their atmosphere. It is a shame and honor culture. And that culture is a culture that will injure your soul and shackle your heart unless the gospel sets you free. You see, the good news is good news to people who know that they're guilty of sin. But the gospel is also good news to people who know that they constantly fight. Remember the pushing water up a hill with a rake? That constantly fight against the shaming culture of the people around them. Of the world around them, of the news media, whose whose raison d'etre is to find the next person to shame. This world is a world lost and broken, incapable of fixing itself, but there is good news. And the good news is this, all of the shame, all of that cursing, All of that lashing, vile, negative language that crushes the hearts of young people, all of it was carried in the body of Jesus. And you don't have to have that shadow hang over you another minute longer. Is there anybody prepared to say hallelujah? Praise God for that. Praise God for that. In a world where shame was so real for Paul, he was able to boast in all of the things that had happened to him. He was able to declare all of the shaming things. He was able to be proud of the fact that Jesus, as he led him into warfare with the enemy, was prepared to allow him to live in the knowledge of the crucifixion that he carried in his body daily. Because he knew that in stepping forward into the enemy's territory and taking on the principal weapons of the enemy of sin and suffering and shame and sadness all of those weapons would be dismantled at the declaration of the name of Jesus and the good news that he brings tell your friends Tell your children, they don't have to live with this. They don't have to be covered in shame. They don't have to be worried about about what people say about them. I mean, this goes back for me a long, long way. I've told you about that little boy called Michael walking across the schoolyard to the classroom with all the children who couldn't read, hearing the ridicule of the others, people not understanding dyslexia, misunderstanding my potential. But I can remember other times recently when the trolls on the internet get going They start beating their drums, start saying all kinds of things, because of course, if it's on the internet, it must be true. 
But for me, the thing that the Lord gave me as the strategy was this. We were working in the inner city. Uh, We were growing fast as a church. The children's work was just exploding everywhere. We needed all of the rooms in our building. We gave a generous settlement to a nursery that was in our building. We said we need the building back. The, the, the tenancy was coming to an end. The contract was complete. We said, you know, we'll help you find another place. And they seemed to agree with that. It seemed all fine until on the front page of the London newspaper, the headline was, Vicar Kicks Out Kids. With a photograph of me. I remember driving back from a weekend away with Sally in a lovely country area called Norfolk. We were crossing Tower Bridge, and as we went into South London, I saw the newspaper stands outside of the shops with the hand-scrawled headlines. And it said, Vicar kicks out kids. And I thought, oh, Lord, help that guy, please. (laughs) He's going to be eviscerated. Then I found out it was me, and sure enough, I was. And the poison pen letters that were dropped through the letterbox. And the people who picketed the church on Mother's Day with banners and television cameras. And this is the strategy the Lord gave me. Go get them. Kill everyone. No, that was the one I hoped that he would give me. (laughs) The strategy he gave me was this. Your identity is secure in me. You're not allowed to say anything. You'll make no defense. You'll be silent before the shearers. And so I was, and have been ever since with all of the other stuff that some of you have read. And the reason for that is, I don't carry shame. Because I've been set free from shame. Shame does not attach itself to me. I'm Teflon coated. And so are you. And so are you. Jesus put it this way. He said, when you've been washed, you only need your feet cleaned. So just wash one another's feet. You're Teflon coated, guys. You've been cleansed. And you've been put in a position that is unassailable. You've been put in a position that is beyond argument. You are free from shame. Say it. I am free from shame. Try it again. I am free from shame. Praise God. Isn't that amazing? And even as I see the smile on these young people's faces, it gladdens my heart. Because if there is a gospel to be shared with the emerging generation, it is that Jesus carried all of the curse and all of the shame and we're free from it. I don't know whether I've got time to do the fear thing but I'll just say this. For each one of us we will get settled a lot of this stuff that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Maybe get guilt settled. Realize that guilt is not something to be managed. We're not into sin management. We're into embracing salvation. We're not into somehow restoring our image and hoping that we can live without shame. Because we are made in the image of God and Christ Jesus has taken us into himself and he has no shame because he has ascended into heaven and is above every authority so that at the name of Jesus, the name that we carry, 
Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And he has extended his identity to us. And so we proclaim him Lord day and night. And we sing with the angels and the elders in heaven. But it may be that one of these three, guilt, shame, or fear, continues to stalk you. For Paul, it was fear. How do I know that? Well, because Jesus says so. Jesus makes it very clear. Paul would never have been able to write Galatians and Romans and all of the rest of the New Testament that he wrote with a gripping sense of guilt and shame. But fear was still his companion right up until the second missionary journey. Here in Acts chapter 18, we have Paul on his first visit to Corinth. He's there, he's met Priscilla and Aquila, he's lived with them, he's started a tent-making business again. There's all kinds of migrants from Rome because Rome has just been, has just been through a huge tumult. Emperor Claudius has sent all of the Jews out of the city, a huge proportion of the population, and they're trying to find places to live around the Roman Empire. And one of the great, one of the great entry points for the eastern journey is Corinth and Centraea, this little corridor of land down there on the Greek peninsula. There are thousands of people, and what do they need? They need tents. And so Priscilla and Aquila and Paul, they're making tents as fast as they can. But when Timothy and Titus arrive from Macedonia, having been left there to settle the church, the church in, in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, they bring a gift and it sets Paul free. And so he begins to preach, but the people in the synagogue become obstinate, and so he moves next door <laughs> and starts his, his new church next door. But they, they get more and more incensed with him as they have done down through the years. And he has this experience that, that God speaks about when he speaks to, to Joshua. He says to Joshua, if you don't get rid of all these Canaanites, they'll be a thorn in your flesh. And they'll always be hunting and harrying you. It feels like that for Paul. He has these people in every place that he goes to seeking his life and trying to destroy his work and to unsettle the church and to tell all of the new Christians who are, who are Gentiles that they need to come become Jews before they become followers of Jesus. They need to be circumcised. They need to follow the, the laws and the rituals of the Old Testament. And Paul says, no, it's not true. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished on the cross, that's enough for us. And so with their incensed, vile anger, they pursue him to death. Do you think Paul might have PTSD from all of the things that he suffered in the past? Do you think that some nights he wakes up in a cold sweat? Acts chapter 18, verse 9. We'll study this again in future weeks. Acts 18, verse 9. It's Paul in Corinth. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Do you think Jesus wastes words in a vision? to the apostle of the New Testament? Do you think he just kind of goes, oh, you know, just be at peace. Don't be afraid. Of course not. This is not something that happens every day. This is a special moment 
in the life of Paul, he's known privation, he's known persecution, he's known difficulty, and he's right at the edge right now. And he needs Jesus right now. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. And in his mind, Paul, confronted with the image of Jesus that he met on the road to Damascus, knows that this is the risen Lord. But somewhere in his heart, he's maybe already asking the question, but how do I set my heart free from fear, Lord? Well, Jesus answers the question before it comes to his lips. Verse 10. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. What is it? His presence. And what is his presence? His presence is the presence of personified love. For God is love. And John tells us later on in the New Testament, in chapter 4, verse 18, write it down. Perfect love does what? Casts out all fear. Maybe during this COVID catastrophe, you've known fear. Perfectly understandable. Maybe over these last weeks and months, you've known shame. The death of Jesus delivers us from all guilt. The death of Jesus delivers us from all shame and the resurrection of Jesus, his presence with us right now, delivers us from all what? All fear. It's gone. So dear Christian friend, today is an important day If you've lived with the fear of being shamed, if you have a family system where shame and honor have been used to cudgel you into fitting in with other people's plans and ideas, if you have known the shaming that so often takes place on social media and your heart has been injured and scarred by it. If today you know that fear still lurks in the chambers of your heart, then today's a special day. Because today's the day we get it all straightened out. And what I mean by that is this. When you make the first move to deal with shame and you make the first move to deal with fear, you begin to develop the behavior patterns that will keep you away from that world. And so as we take communion, I want you to use this, this moment, as a way to engage again with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And as I give you opportunity to come and pray afterwards, to settle, to write in ink what was there in pencil, I want you to take that opportunity, have the prayer team pray for you. And as the worship team plays over us and others pray over you, you will begin to establish the patterns of behavior and thought that will keep you free. Of course, you'll be challenged again. But that's why we're family. That's why we are 
church because we're going to help each other with these things, aren't we? When Jesus established the Last Supper, he did it in a particular way. He took the bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And then he said this, do this in remembrance of me. It's the best English translation that we can come up with. But the word really would be best translated in a sentence. The word in Greek that we translate, remember, is the Greek word anamnesis. Everybody knows what amnesia is. Amnesia means you forget who you are. Anamnesia means you don't forget who you are. Jesus says, take this and don't forget who you are in me. Do you hear that? So we take the bread and we receive it. And we remember who Jesus is and therefore we remember who we are in him. Paul tells us in the same way after supper Jesus took the cup and after giving thanks gave it to his disciples saying drink all of you this is my blood of the new covenant that's given for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins do this as often as you drink it and do not forget who you are <coughs> friends sisters brothers your new people Jesus invites you not to be saved again but to live the new life to the extent to which you need to settle afresh that you're free from shame and free from fear. I would encourage you in all humility to just recognize that these particular chambers of your heart need his presence. That these particular places in your memory need his healing. And come and acknowledge that fact as you come forward right now. Come as the band plays.